Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From Brandeis University in quarantine, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast that looks backwards to see into the future. Our idea is to assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events by looking at books that shape the world we inherited. Today, the co-hosts are me, hello, John Plotz. Hi, John. Hello. Hi. And Vincent Brown. Hi, Vincent. Hello from quarantine in Cambridge. Vincent Brown is Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. He directs the History Design Studio and teaches courses in Atlantic History, African Diaspora Study, and History of Slavery in the Americas. He's the author of The Reaper's Garden, Death and Power in the World of Atlantic Slavery in 2008, and the producer of Herskovitz at the Heart of Blackness, an audiovisual documentary broadcast on the PBS series Independent Lens. And most recently, he's the author of Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War, uh, which just came out a couple of months ago, and we have the pleasure of talking about today. So um, maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about the book and, and what you're trying to do, Vince. Well, first of all, John and Elizabeth, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I admire both of you and your work. Um, and I especially admire the fact that you're even willing to do this during a quarantine in the mm -hmm. midst of a plague um, during which we're recording well, this now. I mean, it's either that or talk to our children. So, you know. Well, this, that's, <laughs> exactly, which is a fate worse than, than this. Yeah. Yes, um, or, or contemplate the fact that they won't talk to us. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> So, so I'll talk about Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war, and kind of how I came to write it. I, I conceived the book, I think, around 2005, but certainly um, after the initial invasion that constituted uh, that, that, that phase of the Iraq War. I mean, I think of the Iraq War now as, as running on three decades from kind of the early 1990s through the present, but certainly there was the invasion in, in 2003 which by 2004, 2005, already looked like it wasn't going well. So I was thinking a lot about empire and insurgency uh, and how it was that um, uh, kind of ragtag uh, impromptu militias could be holding at bay the strongest military um, in the history of the world, perhaps. And so I thought about that as I was thinking about the history of slavery, which was my specialized field. And thinking about a whole series of insurrections that were staged by enslaved Africans from Suriname all the way up to New York City in the last third of the 17th century through the first three quarters of the 18th century. And these Africans, many of them, were from a particular region of West Africa, then called the Gold Coast, roughly what's now Ghana. And they became notorious for staging these insurrections during this period even though they had been slaves. And lots of people had thought about why. One of the reasons was because these people were from a particularly war-torn part of the African continent. Um, and those wars, in fact, facilitated the slave trade. Oftentimes, it was 
European weapons that enhanced the scale and lethality of these wars so that they could produce more slaves for sale to the Europeans to staff the plantations in the Americas. But many of those slaves had military experience because they'd been involved in those wars, or they had experience in evading and defending themselves from other kinds of armies during those wars. And they didn't lose that experience, uh, forget that experience, even though they were enslaved in the Americas. And sometimes they came together, even former enemies coming together in new categories of belonging because they spoke similar languages or worshiped similar gods, or recognized similar kinds of political authority, and then they staged these revolts against plantation society. So these people, called Coromantes at the time, as I said, developed an Atlantic-wide reputation for military prowess. And one of the largest of these revolts was what is known as Tacky's Revolt that occurred in Jamaica in 1760 and 1761. So I decided I would write about Tacky's Revolt as a way of exploring this larger diaspora of militants throughout the Americas that staged these revolts uh, during the period that I, was, that I was writing about. That's great. So I want to pick up on one dimension of that. I'm going to read you and, and everyone a quotation from your prologue, which kind of encapsulates one of what I find the most exciting threads of this very exciting book. So you describe imperial advancement and enslavement during this period as, I'm quoting, a borderless slave war, war to enslave, war to expand slavery and war against slaves, answered on the side of the enslaved by war against slaveholders, and also war among slaves themselves. And you link this emphasis on war to views of space and scale. And this actually connects to some of your other work, I think, both the, um, uh, the mapping project and also the Herskowitz film, which I recommend to everyone. And we'll, we'll include a link to uh, the trailer on our site. This is a really great uh, movie which is also kind of about how to rethink space um, through movements and through particularly the movements of empire and diaspora. So I wonder if you can talk more. You also say during the same section that warfare migrates and that you wanna think about how across vast distances, these wars within wars connected the constituent elements of empire, diaspora, and insurrection. So can you tell us more about how this makes us think differently about space and about maybe the Caribbean in relationship to the rest of the world? Sure. One of the challenges of, of this project uh, and with the subject that I started with is that it's inherently transnational and it transcended the kind of regional units of analysis that we normally think of when we go to write history. So it didn't happen in one nation state. It didn't happen in one colony. It didn't happen just within one empire. It didn't happen just on one continent. So trying to kind of tie together this event, uh, the slave revolt in 1760 and 61, with its roots and its routes and its reverberations um, became an inherently spatial project. And I had to think about how I was gonna integrate the different histories that all pulled together into this, into this one place in 1760 and 61. And so already I was trying to think about how I was going to map this history and think about how it is that, say, West African history featured in Jamaica, how it is that European imperial history shaped West African history even before that, mm -hmm. how it is the reverberations of these actions by Africans in Jamaica then reverberated up to North America, back mm -hmm. across to Europe, and then, to some degree, back to West Africa. And so already I was thinking kind of about this entire region through which these events played out, 
and I needed categories, units of analysis, that were not the received ones for, for, for the kind of history that a lot of us have been writing. Now, I think this part might be relevant to, to the moment we're living in right now. Um, I had already conceived my method of working as kind of like an epidemiological analysis mm -hmm. in the first book in Reaper's Garden, where one follows causal agents, right? What, epidemi what an epidemiologist would see as a vector, follows causal agents from one place to another and looks at how they adapt or don't adapt, fail to adapt to their environments and how they have certain kinds of causes, certain kinds of effects in yeah. different kinds of environments as they move across space. So already that kind of epidemiological thinking that I may have inherited from my father who is a bacteriologist uh -huh. and taught medical microbiology at UC San Diego for his entire career. I may have inherited that from him. Um, that already was a part of my thinking. And I, I, I applied that to this book where it seemed especially appropriate. Yeah. So I have one question, but also it, I, it's funny because uh, you just posted on Facebook, we happen to be Facebook friends, a map of all the states and uh, which states uh, gave a lockdown and when, right? And what that could be predicted about the spread of, uh, a spread of COVID. So you're clearly, this is clearly something that's on your mind and, and your yeah. mind runs in these. It's, it's the way I think. And like I said, my, my dad was a bacteriologist. And so he's had me washing my hands assiduously ever since I was a child. Right. <laughs> Can I, so I would love to follow up Vince on, on one particular aspect of this, because I really loved the way in describing it, you talked about the, and this is something you unpack in the book a lot as well, the notion of the ongoing wars, you know, wars of empire that then have a resonance in the war of, you know, the war that is slavery and the war against enslaved populations of enslaved populations against their um, enslavers. But you know, I was thinking about this question of the way that vectors get carried and the the way that military training works as part of the story of how populations are able to mobilize against other populations. And I guess the 19th century version of that I'm thinking of is that a lot of the working class people I study, like in the early 19th century, like the Chartists, get their start out of radicalism caused by the Napoleonic Wars. That is, they get, you know, people have to go serve for the British against the French. And that's actually what gives them the weaponry and the training that they need. So that's a very straightforward argument about like uh, distribution of, uh, you know, forms of violence. Is the story, like the story that you're telling overall, is it a story about that kind of unintended consequence too? Like, I mean, the ways in which one sort of war form kicks over and has an unintended consequence of, of producing a different kind of war form? So certainly the story of unintended consequences was foremost in my mind, even when I began this project. Um, and I guess, you know, if we go back to the early 2000s and thinking about the kind of launching of the terror wars, one of the things that kept going back and forth in my mind was how during the 1980s, the kind of big Cold War period, um, when the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan 
and the United States was backing the Mujahideen holy warrior rebels mm. against mm -hmm. the godless communists of the Soviet yeah. Union, right? I remember yeah. those the bumper stickers with the uh, praying figure. Yes, right. The Mujahideen were the, were the good guys yeah, for Americans, exactly. right? They were our friends. Yeah. Even the Cold War icon Rambo, right, in Rambo 3, is fighting alongside the Mujahideen, yeah. right, against the Soviet <laughs> Union, right? And so, like, right. in late 2001, when suddenly, you know, kind of, it was the Afghans who had hosted Osama bin Laden and who were at fault for, for the September 11th attacks, and we were now at war in Afghanistan, and our friend had become our enemy, right? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about those kinds of unintended consequences, where in fact some of the very people that we had equipped and armed and trained during the Cold War um, ended up fighting the terror wars against the United States. So that kind of relationship of collaboration and betrayal and warfare was already on my mind. Mm -hmm. And I began to think about these West African um, slave trading states who traded actively with European states for weapons to, to fight their enemies, and then would trade slaves often in exchange, right? Had been in some ways in collaboration with these European yeah. slave traders, right? Um, right? But of course, the wars that were facilitated by those exchanges of weapons then had reverberations that the slave traders, that the slaveholders in the Americas uh, hadn't counted on. There were unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So already that was something that I was thinking about now. I also began to think about the entire environment as an environment motivated, shaped, conditioned by warfare. Yeah. And that's where thinking about slavery itself as a state of war came in. And I had Olada Equiano, Gustavus Vasa, we know better as Olada Equiano, who said in his autobiography, when you make people slaves, you compel them to live with you in a state of war. And then he actually goes on to quote John Milton, uh, in, in, in the conversation between Beelzebub and God mm. about how, you know, people who are subject to tyrannical authority uh, can only return um, violence, hatred. Um, they can't return peace if peace hasn't been given to them. So for a lot of Equiano, slavery itself was a state of war. And this wasn't just a metaphor, right? He had been in Jamaica in the early 1770s when the island was still reeling from the slave revolts of the 1760s. So this was something that was kind of part of his real experience. So thinking of slavery as itself as a state of war then helped me kind of understand the entire world as one in which war was the most important motivating factor for most of the actions that I described. So yeah, so Vince, actually, when you and I were talking about this in the run up to this conversation, I also mentioned how much I had enjoyed just teaching Orinoco recently. Mm. And that's another one in which the state of slavery is understood as potentially perpetual warfare. So that so so Orinoco goes back to it's like 1688, I guess. Is this do you have a particular do you do you have a kind of moment of origin story about where this new configuration of slavery is? Like, do you like, do you see, I, like, I really love that you quote, um, you mentioned the age of servile wars, that is this Roman period in which these, all these slave revolts occurred as something that Europeans had on their mind in the 18th century when confronted with the possibility of slave war. But so do you, do you have an analysis that puts this kind of slavery as warfare as being kind of woven into the nature of slavery itself all the way back? Or is it specific to 
I don't know, like the American, the American modern capital experience. Like, is it the Americas or is it just slavery in the modern age? What's the, yeah, what's, what's the story? So I, I do kind of weave this notion of warfare into my understanding of slavery as an institution. And in some ways I'm going to admit to, to being a bit of a bad historian here because what I, what I don't do is say, you know, right. I know, I know. (laughs) What I don't do is say, here's an origin, a transformation, and a definitive end to this kind of phenomenon. What I do is I say, well, where we think that we've got the beginning of one war and an identifiable trajectory for it and a definitive end to that war, maybe we don't. I mean, when we look at the kinds of conflicts that I'm describing, it looks to be war all the way down, where it's very hard to tell where things end, yeah. where, things, uh, where things begin, where things end, and also where the divisions are between civilians and combatants. Mm-hmm. Again, I'll say that I think that that's an artifact of having conceived this project as we were all beginning to think about the implications of the terror wars in which, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't clear like who the civilians and combatants were. It wasn't clear where the battle lines were. It wasn't clear like which countries the, the war was being fought yeah. in, right? right. Um, and of course, military theorists have been trying to come to terms with that as well and changing their own conceptions of warfare. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a capacious definition of war, certainly, um, probably too loose and too capacious for people you know, who need very precise definitions and, as I said, precise trajectories for things, but it functions as a kind of optic for this book. Um, so that once we see war in this more capacious, capacious fashion, we can see all these things as related to each other that had once been kept apart. And here's yeah. an example. So Taki's revolt in 1760 and 61 happens in the midst of the Seven Years' War between Britain, France, and eventually Spain. And that is a global conflict that has often been called the First European World War, right? Mm -hmm. But mainstream historians of the Seven Years' War never really see Tacky's Revolt as part of the Seven Years' War. Mm -hmm. And this is despite the fact that, you know, many of the more famous battles of the Seven Years' War, like the conquest of Quebec, were fought by people who then went to Jamaica to suppress Tacky's Revolt. Mm people who were involved in the conquest of Senegal or the battles in Martinique and Guadeloupe then sailed to Jamaica to suppress Tacky's revolt. So there are all of these soldiers and sailors, military officials who were involved in other parts of the Seven Years' War who are then fighting one of the longest and most protracted battles of the Seven Years' War in Jamaica. And yet historians of the Seven Years' War think that's a slave revolt. And it That's part like- of another history. <laughs> so can I ask you guys about a book from my period, this book that I'm holding up now, Civilizing uh, Subjects? Catherine Hall. Yeah. She's a genius. She's a genius. Okay, good. I was that that's my main question. Is she a genius or not? Okay. So so I love this book, but obviously it's about Jamaica in like sort of the 1830s to 1860s period. But she makes this really interesting distinction. And I was wondering if it was helpful that, you know, she says that people were trying to that that those who were trying to manage empire thought of them thought of the empire as having colonies and dependencies and dependent like india would be a dependency in that term because it's like those are the childlike natives who have to be managed so it's it's a it's a site of colonialism in the classic sense and then colonies would be more like settler colonialism mm-hmm. and that jamaica was this problem it kind of dangled between the two well, and, since, as you said, you know, 90% of Jamaicans during this time were enslaved. 
right? Yeah, I mean, she's writing about the end of slavery and right. through the middle kind of, you know, third of the 19th century. For sure. So it's a yeah. bit later period. So by the time, you know, her story picks up, most of these, these Jamaicans have been born in the island. Um, they're no longer African born. It's a, it's a largely settled place. It's not mm. in the same kind of turmoil that it's right. in the mid 18th century. But they're not uh, colonizers, they're colonized still. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So, so, when, uh, so that's helpful. So, but, so you're saying that basically that, cause I was actually thinking about how that sets up an interesting parallel, which you get in somebody like Thomas Carlyle also between Jamaica and Ireland, oh, where yeah. Ireland and Jamaica are both these big problematic islands that night that, that neither allow themselves to be colonized the way that like you can imagine Canada or Australia being colonized, nor do they settle into the, standard imperial relationship of india but they're just they're just in their annoyances in 19th century yeah i i can't, actually can't remember exactly how Catherine hall makes that comparison i'm sorry but yeah. but to me like the key distinction between say ireland and india and the caribbean is the caribbean territories are utterly remade by european colonization yeah. in a way that Ireland and India are not kind of you know imperialist empire and, and colonization is kind of an overlay certainly in India and I think in Ireland as well whereas you know the populations of the Caribbean are largely replaced uh, in the 17th century and yeah. the 18th century by European so you, you do get the Ulster plantation in Ireland also that is there is an attempt yeah. to remake it yes yes mm -hmm. But I mean, when you're talking about a population collapse uh, in the Caribbean on kind of right. on a scale that you have in the 16th century, right. and then a replacement of that population by people born elsewhere, predominantly in West Africa, from a wide mm -hmm. swath of territory from the Senegal right. down to the Zaire River, right. it's a totally different story. Right. To right, but you get suborned agricultural production in both cases with, a, with, a, mm -hmm. with what's seen as an inferior and arguably a racialized inferior population, you know, like the Irish yes. Catholics are also seen as just like mm. serving in these plantations, but yeah. Yeah, and of course, yeah. you know, kind of when the British really get their, their plantations going in Barbados in the 17th century, they're using captives from the wars of the three kingdoms. They've got Irish indentured servants working on sugar plantations. Right. Um, and it's not until they can replace them with, with Africans that they switch right. over to the way that it's customarily done by, yeah. by those, the Portuguese and the Spanish. Right. This is kind of connecting to the conversation we had with Ajanta a few weeks or months or years ago. The time has used all meaning. Um, BC. About, <laughs> yeah, about the way the that plague. capital makes what what capital does about difference and how capital makes yeah. certain kinds of differences and and sort of you know needs to in order to be legible to itself or in order for mm. labor to be legible and uh, yeah and so on and and, 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 that, and that comes with its own unintended consequences so it's kind of to go back to the story i mean because 90 percent of the population in jamaica is enslaved that means all the people who are doing the labor at varying degrees it, with various statuses are also enslaved. So you've got all these enslaved people of relatively greater status, right? So you've got slave drivers right. who are supposedly they're managing other enslaved people for the benefit of the overseers and the plantation holders. But those drivers are, you know, they're kind of ambivalent figures, right? So mm -hmm. on the one hand, they're working right. on behalf of the agricultural capitalists but they also have authority over the enslaved. And it turns out that many of the leaders of Taki's Revolt 
had been drivers mm-hmm. uh, before they became slave rebels, right? And, yeah. and this is where you get into the question of this kind of category of Coromanti too, right? That is sort of, seems to be partly, you know, it has some historical roots in West Africa, but it's also kind of constituted through the movement across the Atlantic. And it's also partly a category that, you know, enslavers put on, I mean, it, and it was, you know, it seemed as though some of these stereotypes about Coromantes were, yeah, they're warlike, but they're also super smart and they have good dental hygiene and um, they're, you know, good for being in these key positions for various kinds of reasons, right? So it's sort of this interesting way that I guess identity gets like constituted, mutually constituted, and then becomes the sort of category of protagonism in this war. Yeah, and in this, in this case, it's a, a category of belonging and identification and a performance that's constituted in, through, and by warfare. Uh, and so it becomes key to explaining how this war played out. So it's not just a question of, you know, identity politics, right? And it's not just a question of a cultural identity, right. but it's a question of how the politics of identification are made in this context and what consequences and effects they have in the prosecution of these of these conflicts. Yeah, as a kind of agent of mobilization. Yeah, right. And then, Vince, isn't there the category of, isn't the maroon sort of a separate third category for you in the argument? Like, is that not so much? Yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, yes. I mean, so many of the slave rebels who initially kind of started resisting, if you can, if you can use that word, resisting British colonization of Jamaica when they conquered the island from the Spanish in 1655, and then went to the mountains and continued to raid plantations through the late 17th and early 18th century, a lot of these people wound up being from the Gold Coast. They were also Coromantes. Um, by the 1720s or so, their assaults on plantations became um, kind of so frequent and so, so destructive to British enterprise that the British were engaged in a major war against the Maroons. Mm-hmm. And through the 1730s, it wasn't clear that the British were even going to be able to maintain their hold on the island. They thought they might lose it to the Maroons. Mm-hmm. So they ended up signing uh, treaties with Maroons in 1739, uh, starting from 1739, which allowed the Maroons to maintain roughly their autonomy in their kind of mountain strongholds, but also required the Maroons to police subsequent slave revolts, right. which they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Tacky's revolt, you find the Maroons are key adjuncts to the British military in their suppression of the revolt, even though many of them probably would have been Coromantes as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, important to me in the argument is the idea that you don't know as much as you think you know about the politics of the enslaved and the politics of anti-colonialism just by knowing the identity of the rebels, right? right? If you kind of know their culture, people have assumed that if you kind of, if you, if, you, if you have an identity for someone, you kind of know where they're coming from culturally, you can largely predict their political activity. Mm-hmm. And I'm resisting that argument here. I'm saying yeah. even once you've got the category of belonging created, that is still going to be fractured and inflected by politics as they play out on the ground. Yeah. And, and the reason for like, doing that is to make sure that we understand the enslaved as political people as well, with geopolitical implications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was sort of what I was meaning about this kind of symmetry thing. In a yeah. Sense. And I think you know you, that approach, um, sort of the the idea of being able to connect the dots that way, 
it's, well, I, mean, I guess I'm asking you, would you say that that is a kind of artifact of historical description of previous histories in the sense that it's sort of like, okay, we're gonna kind of figure out who the actors are and the actors become these sort of conflated, somewhat essentialized categories? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how to answer that because I don't want to kind of tar, you know, traditional history with, <laughs> with too broad a brush. <laughs> it's easy for me. I'm an anthropologist. <laughs> I would say, I would say there was a kind of interpretive conceit that thought that kind of most of politics could be inferred by what you knew about people's cultural identities, and that's that's one that I'm rejecting. Okay. Uh, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to leaven that with a strong dose of materialist analysis. Right. Well, maybe materialist analysis is our pivot point to the other book that we wanted to talk about, which is The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, which also takes a, a war, both a uh, war, but war also in the sense of class conflict that is racialized and in that sense different from a lot of the Marxist analyses of the mm -hmm. time. So, so I love Black Jacobins. Black Jacobins was introduced to me as an undergraduate history student by my undergraduate mentor, Stephen Hahn, who now mm -hmm. teaches at NYU. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, hey, you know, I, you're just in Slave Revolt. I think you might like this. And, mm -hmm. and I loved it. And looking back, I think one of the things I, I, I love most about it and still love is, again, this sense that enslaved Black people were geopolitical actors uh, and that their actions had broad, world-changing historical implications. Now, you know, I didn't think about this in a very sophisticated way at the time, but I've come to appreciate how much we are struggling against some of the kind of fundamental assumptions and conceits of modern thought, which, you know, if you trace back to, to GWF Hegel, the philosopher, who claimed that Africa forms no historical part of the world, mm -hmm. there's this assumption that Africa is kind of a land before time. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a prehistory. And when you look back at the formation of the disciplines in the 19th century, you look at what historians thought they were responsible for, Mostly they thought they were responsible for the political decisions of elite actors, right? In Europe and North America. Mm -hmm. Like history wasn't a subject that applied to Africa from the 19th century, really, I mean, through the mid 20th century. It's mm -hmm. not really until decolonization that you get people thinking very seriously about African history uh, in the same way you might be thinking about as, your, as European and, uh, and American history. And so just this idea that kind of, you know, black people do form a historical part of the world, that their actions are, are sometimes radically consequential was the thing that still sticks with me in that book. Now, there weren't many actors acting as Africans, right? Drawing upon their African experience in that book. That came much mm -hmm. later. Right. And for that, you know, there was a book called uh, Africa and Africans in the Making of the Atlantic World by John Thornton. that was mm -hmm. initially published in 1992, I believe, um, that really mm -hmm. tried to assert the importance of, again, not only kind of African culture, but of African history and historical transformation in the making of this larger Atlantic world. And that has been important for me too, to kind of pick up where CLR James left off mm -hmm. and, and combine that with what John Thornton asserted, which is that, you know, these African histories also play out in certain ways in the Americas uh, and ways that you can trace, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes, and this goes back to your earlier question, using fairly old school methods. Mm -hmm. Who did what, where, and when? Yep. Those were the fundamental questions that I started with. And it turns out that when you really ask them and try to answer them honestly, you can see African actors engage in their own diplomatic negotiations and their own wars, then happening to be enslaved and pursuing different kinds of war aims 
in the Americas. And that to me, I think, picks up um, you know, the insight of CLR James that, that these people have geopolitical visions uh, and that their actions have geopolitical consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really, the first thing that struck me about it the first time I read it was that the chapter in which he really talks about the motivations and the political actions of, of Fleets in Haiti is called The Property. And it's this, you know, very kind of ironic title and sort of Marxist title, right? Like this is the um, collaboration of, uh, you know, the, the setting up of the class conflict. But um, it's uh, the, the sort of, yeah, the irony is palpable of having just where you're having this very uh, strikingly complex and, you know, layered sets of activities and motivations and mobilizations it's in a chapter in which they're defined as, you know, property and commodities by. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, like, you know, which is appropriate to kind of Marxist analysis, right? Which is like, that was their role in the slave society. Mm -hmm. And what I hope historians are bringing to that now is the idea that they weren't just property, that their role in the slave society mattered, but yeah. so did those prior histories that right. they brought with them. Yeah. And so here you have- clearly aware of, right? Oh yeah, I mean, it's, the property it. is, is kind of ironic in the title, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. how has the book been received? So far, so good. One of the most gratifying things is that I've done a couple of interviews for Jamaican radio. Mm -hmm. And I was um, on a, a call with a guy named Derek Black X Robinson, who for the last decade or more has been advocating for Taki to be named a national hero within Jamaica, mm. um, alongside Marcus Garvey uh, and Bob Marley. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think Bob Marley might not be a national hero yet, but you know, Marcus Garvey. What, is, what does it mean to be a national hero? So it just means you're recognized as a kind of, you know, in the, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to say pantheon, but right. you're recognized as one of the kind of major national you're heroes. On the like money. A, Do you yeah, get a stamp? Like a, yeah. Yeah. I think you're on the money, yeah. you know, kind of you're, you're in government documents and things like that. But, you know, Black X has been advocating for this for more than a decade by walking from the site where the slave revolt started, Fort Haldane in St. Mary Parish, um, all the way down to Emancipation Day Park uh, in Kingston. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was on the radio with me and he quite liked the book and has decided that he wants to use it also to, to create a tour of Tacky's Revolt in Jamaica. Oh, and cool. so that was pretty cool to, to feel like the book was already going to be useful to someone for whom this history has been meaningful for a long time. Um, so even before the historians chime in, I don't know how, I don't know how the historians are gonna receive it. It's too early for their reviews. <laughs> But even before the historians get to it, you know, I know that some, you know, activists in Jamaica have found the book to be of use, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. You were telling me about a couple of reviews in England. Oh, yeah. So that was funny. So I got a review in The Guardian where um, the guy, it was, appreciative, it was an appreciative review, it was a positive review, um, said that it wasn't a popular history, but it was an important history, which I, which I thought was cool. Um, and then it turned out that this reviewer was someone who was a special assistant to both George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. And, <laughs> and, and I felt like in some ways, like maybe, you know, if he likes it, maybe I haven't made my animosities clear enough. <laughs> but, <laughs> you thought but, you were know, daring them, but they thought you were inviting Yeah, but, them. I'll, but, I'll, but I'll, take, I'll take all the readers that I can. Um, uh -huh. So, I mean, it means it's reaching people that, that a book like this might not normally reach, which, which I think is a good thing.
Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we're at the moment to bring in recallable books. So um, this is kind of a simple one and you know, you don't have to recall it by going back very far, but I was thinking about Marlon James's book of night women, which is a fantastic novel, um, which is about a slave revolt, but not just about a slave revolt. You'd kind of know a slave revolt is coming and it's predicted at the very beginning of the book, but really it's a kind of almost a Victorian romance where you are with an enslaved woman and the, the women around her and you're really kind of you know taken into their dreams and aspirations and how those dreams and aspirations are frustrated by slavery right and, and even kind of you know intimate dreams sexual dreams like the kinds of liaisons these people envision that are utterly distorted and frustrated um, um, and, and kind of you know just just mangled by slavery um, and it's a really fascinating book that doesn't start with the enslaved as non-persons and ciphers, but allows that kind of symmetry that Elizabeth was talking about, which is like, what if you imagine an enslaved woman having a similar kind of desire to a woman in a 19th century mm -hmm. romance? Uh, and then you look at the effect of slavery on that desire. That leading up to a slave revolt just kind of, you know, it, it, it makes it internal, it makes it psychological. It just kind of brings it alive in a way that, that historians often can't. Hmm. So I would, I would advocate everybody read that book alongside Tacky's Revolt, the story yeah. of the Atlantic Slave War. <laughs> Absolutely. So mine is going in a little bit of a different direction and sort of thinking about the space and scale questions. I just finished teaching a course that was partly about the Caribbean and the anthropology of the Caribbean and the way in which world system theory of the 1960s and 70s, which is an incredibly powerful tool actually of analysis, but you know, has this fairly static interpretation of the world with Europe at the core, and then these other places as you know, periphery and semi-periphery. The book that I'm thinking of is by John Tutino, it's called Making a New World, and mm. it's about the area that I've done a lot of research, which is the Bajio in central Mexico, and sort of mm. saying like, what would you think about that as, as a world system, world economic system? And what does that do to our other views of things? And it, it reminds me of your discussion about uh, Tacky's Revolt as part of the Seven Years' War. Mm. Um, it has a similar kind of like tilting the view slightly in a way that kind of really reveals a lot and, and has a lot of both historical and political implications. Oh, that's neat. I mean, yeah. so, I don't, so I don't know that book, but I, I still have a soft spot for world systems theory and, and, mm -hmm. and world systems yeah. analysis, in part because of the ambition to, to see an integrated world, Absolutely. not to start yeah. with the nation state as the natural unit or container of history or the continent or yeah. the people, but to, to envision the world as being interactive and dynamic in that Absolutely. way. I, and I, I very much jump off that. Yeah, I, I think we can't forget too that like, it was in contrast and explicit criticism of modernization theory that was yes. hugely dominant, right? And that was very explicitly part of US imperial domination, right? I mean, the subtitle of the stages of economic growth, which is kind of like the you know, primary text of modernization theory is a non-communist manifesto. Yeah, and, right. you know, Rasta was an advisor to Kennedy in the early 60s, yeah. right? So absolutely. and and comes along with a lot of economic theory from the Economic Council in Latin America about the transfer of value that you've talked about really amazingly in terms of sugar and oil dense, our mm. museum 
few months ago. But yeah, and I think it, like when I teach it now, students don't see that, right? They're very, right. it makes them very uncomfortable, right? But I think there's ways in which it can also be, you know, the tilting is very, is very useful. Yeah, yeah. And I should just cool. say, just to give a little, so Tutina, I really like Tutina's book, but there's actually a, an article much from quite a long time ago by Angel Pelham called The World's First Economic System, which is about the Bahia. So, mm. so Tutina nice. does a great job with an idea that comes from Pelham. So. Hmm. Sounds good. Okay, so this was great. And I'm going to pivot for a second to our credits. And uh, first off, I want to thank you, Vince, for thank you um, talking with us on this. Yeah, thanks, Vince. That was great. Rainy and quarantini afternoon. Quarantini afternoon with no quarantini. A quarantini. What kind of drink is that going to be? <laughs> I don't know. I've been using it. What's going to be in a quarantini? Bit, Come on, you, you've got to make it coramantini, man. Yes. <laughs> Whatever it is, it has to have quinine in it. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Oh my God. Right. The tonic for our times. Yeah. yeah exactly. Recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. We're affiliated with Public Books, and typically we're recorded and edited in the Media Lab of the Brandeis Library by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden, and production assistance, including website design and social media, is done by Matthew Schratz and Kaliska Ross. Mark DeLello oversees and advises on all technological matters. We appreciate the support of university librarian Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson and of the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always wanna hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email, me, email us directly at ferry or at plots at brandeis.edu, or you can contact us through social media and our website. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast joy and comfort. You may be interested in, in checking out past episodes, including topics like love, deindustrialization, Polynesia, or some other angle altogether. Other episodes, which we're calling Recall This Book in Focus, include conversations with Samuel Delaney, Zadie Smith, and Mike Lee. And we're currently rolling out a series called Recall This Book, Books in Dark Times, where we converse with various partners about what books bring them comfort and joy in these cataclysmic moments. Thank you and goodbye until next time.